Welcome to the English Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Stu Sensei English Podcast with me, Stu Sensei, and a guest today. Uh, I have Richie with me from Richie English. Nice to see you, buddy. Hello, hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Hello, fantastic. Everyone. It's, it's, it's fantastic to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. It's Got great it. to have you here. Um, so today is a special and hopefully um, will be something that will be continued in the future is we're going to go through the history of England, like a bit of maybe a tinty bit of information on the language as well. But some of you have asked me about England itself and and why it is so vast and different in terms of language. And I think the history is the key thing. So to tell you that information about it. So I'm going to, we're going to go over the history of England itself and then give you some, a brief history, by the way, and give you some points that would have affected the language at the same time. Um just so you know, we are not historians. We, we, not, are, we, haven't, we haven't done a degree in this area. Just we are incredible enthusiasts about the history of English language. Um, it's very, very fascinating, especially how everything changed over time. Uh, so hopefully you guys get something out of this as well, as much as we do through doing it. Okay. So to start with, we look at the makeup of England. How was England where who was who was there who was it just a vast array of land before uh, all of this happened or did the language just appear were the people always there that's what we're going to kind of discuss a little bit for today and um, we're going to start off with England itself has had people there for about a million years actually um, but not homo sapiens the original the people that originally uh, lived in England when the language was being built that we we know and more assume close to ourselves today uh, there was another group about a million years ago not just them though um, on England itself there was uh, lions elephants and many array of animals you would not associate with England these days so it's kind of an interesting uh, setup not there then. Sauropods, sauropods actually. Yeah. Ichthyosaurs, things like this. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting compared to what we view now. I, like, I don't know about you, Richie. You've been in England. You've stayed in there for a long time. Did you see any lions while you were there? <laughs> no, I haven't seen any. But um, I saw a lot of big spiders at a course. Yeah, so it, England is possibly one of the safest places in terms of animals. I mean, there are no there my are no country. animals that are scary. My own, country, my own country as well, Hungary as well. It's yeah, I think Europe is a relatively safe place, to be honest with you. There are many, um, there aren't many wild beasts. There's there's no. something that we have in my area called the Beast of Exmoor, but it's kind of more like a myth. Do you have any legends? In, in your area as well? Um, wolves, dire wolves, something like this. Big big bears. but And of course, yeah, uh, Dracula, vampires. Yeah. Ah, so, that's it. So Dracula is, is, well, from your region, is that right? The region, not from Hungary, but from Transylvania, but it's 
close enough, I would say. And actually, Transylvania once was uh, was a part of the Hungarian kingdom and the Austro-Hungarian Empire as well. Okay, no, that's that's very very fascinating. And um, so basically, there were people there for a long time, but the problem was that uh, in around England's area or around most of the world, there was an ice age that actually hit. So people had to move away from England. And how did they do that? Because England's an island as we see it now, but actually in the past, uh, England wasn't. and France, yeah, exactly, it was connected. England and France was connected. Uh, it um, was, I, I think that was a landmass called Doggerland, and it was the part of Doggerland. A little bit later on, Doggerland appears. It's true, though. There is a piece of land called Doggerland. Um, but at the start, it was just the one area just between Dover and Calais. Yes. Uh, the, the corner, there's a piece of land. But because of the, the ice melting and the, the ice age happening, it got very cold and everywhere got covered. And then suddenly everyone had to move away and then straight after well not straight after it took a bit of time obviously but over a bit of time uh that all thawed out and then people came back from the main continent of europe and came back to england so over this that's time what, that's that's what actually, sorry about it that's what no, uh, that's what i think represented in uh, in game of thrones as well the ah quite in Invasion of the Andals, there was a land strip between mm. Westeros and Essos or something, and that was the land strip. I think that was the inspiration. I mean, this Dover Calais land strip was the inspiration for J.R. Martin. Uh, it Martin could Lane. very well be because it's based on history, in obviously, historical, loosely on historical events, or at least it has the makeup of those kind of times. Um, and slightly replicates that kind of atmosphere that was then when they were maybe not that far back um, because of the, um, it was to do with Kings and Queens, obviously, but there are going to be elements like that that may have been included inside it for sure. So it's interesting, isn't it, that even in popular culture, these old events are being brought forward. Um, uh, I myself, I don't look at Game of Thrones as a fantasy. Mm -hmm. I think it's a collection of ancient history happenings and events of Britain, actually. Yeah, it's definitely, you can see, especially um, when it's referring to the kings and queens and how they yes. double-crossed each other and these things. I could yes. see that happening in the uh, Anglo-Saxon period. It does remind me of that because a little of the bit. The Roses, Lannister, Lancaster, Stark. Ah, oh, yeah, of course, as well, a hundred percent. Symbols, uh, but with with all of those elements where they all have different regions, um, and they are fighting like they're kings of their own areas, really, like king of the north. You could imagine the Vikings yes. through that period. Yep. So there's a loose yep. connection Definitely. for sure. I hundred percent agree, um, but yeah, there was just a few people basically just scavengers as well so they would act like you would imagine um any animal that eats off of dead prey that something else has killed mm. so that's so long ago can you imagine that we're completely different now hunters gatherers exactly but they, they were primarily scavengers but the people that we know are like the nathander i can never pronounce it Neanderthals, the Neanderthals yeah, are Neanderthals, the yeah. ones that came in afterwards after that. And then after another ice age, the Homo, Homo sapiens came over. 
Homo sapiens. Um, so all of these different groups of people are appearing and, um, and trying out the land and, and adapting in their own ways. But it's so different to what we think of it as now, you know, there's, there's, they probably wouldn't have been the same level of communication as we have now, especially with language. If there was any, it would be extremely simplified um, and probably nothing similar to what we, even in old English, I can't imagine it being too similar to what we would know from old English because of what we'll find out in a few months time is the, how that's been adapted from many other locations you know not from necessarily the first people there but before any of these invasions it's just to say that there are some people there they're settled um and going up towards the future we're going to see some invasions of some time so let's have a look at what england looks like now as you can see here here's the uk as we know so the land bridge would have been like here between the two nations and then you said about the North Sea. That was North Sea connected Denmark, That's right. uh, Netherlands, and, and the UK and some parts of uh, France, and maybe Ireland, you know, the nearest points of Ireland and, and, and the Isle of Man, and of course Scotland as well. Maybe that's that was in, included in it as well. Not sure. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. I think that um, we can't even imagine it, can you? You know, it's no, so different to all of this water that we have now. But yeah, we you could imagine people walking over across from here to here, animals moving either way, um, and people could be moving over here and living here. Yes. You know, so that's kind of crazy in its own right. Um, but that's an interesting fact that I didn't know about as well, that even even Ireland maybe has got some, uh, there may be some landmass there in the water that's currently there now. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Next Monday, we'll be looking at how the Indo-Europeans moved throughout Europe and how that's laid the land and set the scene for the history of England as we know it today. Look forward to speaking to you next time. Ciao. Hello and welcome to the Stu Sensei English podcast with me, Stu Sensei. Today we are looking at idioms created by the man himself, William Shakespeare. Now, William Shakespeare is possibly one of the most well-known writers, playwrights, poets within English literature's history, um, known throughout the world, coming from Stratford-upon-Avon. He had an incredible impact to the English language. William Shakespeare used more than 20,000 words in his plays and poems, poems, and he provided the first recorded use of over 1,700 words in the English language. And they can be as simple as bedroom, gossip, kissing, lonely, rant, traditional, and many, many more. And these are just some of the things he's introduced, but he also introduced some great idioms to the language. And I want to go over five today and tell you exactly which uh, play you might hear them in. The first one is to break the ice. Break the ice. Break the ice first come up in 
William Shakespeare's play, The Taming of the Shrew. And what it means is, is to reduce the awkward initial social tension. When you first meet someone, that awkward atmosphere that you feel um, and you say something in order to feel the emptiness, feel that strange void of noise. Um, so that is breaking the ice, that moment you speak to the other person to reduce the awkward tension. For example, you may have just met uh, one of your best friend's friends and you are going to talk to him and your best friend leaves to go to the toilet. So there is a, a large amount of like that awkward tension in the air. So in order to break the ice, you make a joke. You make a joke with him and you refer to your friend, your best friend and his best friend. And then that way you get to loosen the tension. You get to get to know the person more. Another one is a wild goose chase. A wild goose chase. This one actually comes from Romeo and Juliet. And it refers to a hopeless search for something that is unattainable. There's quite often, I think, that we've all been on a wild goose chase at some point. If you've got kids, you've probably been on a few wild goose chases over your time. If you're someone who has a partner who forgets where they put things and it's in a very obvious place, you go through many wild goose chases for sure. Um, and a good example is losing your keys. So my partner the other day, she said to me, ah, oh, I don't know where my keys are. I think I've lost them. So I went, I searched everywhere in the house, looking for these keys, wondering where they could be. Five minutes later, oh, don't worry, I've got them. I found them, she said. And I said, where were they? She said, oh, in my trouser pocket, the one that I'm wearing. I was like, oh, no, I've really been on a wild goose chase with that one. 